Well, good. Good to see everybody tonight. And we'll be continuing. We don't need, you don't need a handout tonight. I don't think that you're going to need one. I, um, if you have last week's, there's a few things on there. Like you said, we're going to look at, like we talked about last week, we're going to look at Cyrus tonight and talk about that so we can turn to Ezra 1 and find Ezra 1. And um, if you were in our service this morning for the the teaching on the sovereignty of God over salvation, some of that, some of those same kind of principles will tie into what we'll look at tonight. Little different, but the sovereignty of God over the hearts of men. And so, let me grab these doors here. All right. Now, believe it or not, this will be the last week of... Next week, we'll finish up Ezra chapter 1 and um, chapter 2. I know you don't believe me, but it's true. Chapter 2 is 70 verses, but it's of um, uh, the names of the people that came back and the family and how many there were and different things. And so we're not going to study those out in detail. We're just going to make some general observations about those. In addition to the, yeah, we won't go through every single name here. And then, um, and then we'll talk about the temple vessels and such next week as well, because there's, something, there's some interesting things to see in that. Uh, so we'll combine those two, and then already we'll be in chapter 3, which, as you notice, is the rebuilding of the altar and the establishment, really, of, of worship from, for God and um, the principle of, of needing sacrifice and that in order to know God and worship Him and stuff. So we'll be on to chapter 3 within a couple of weeks. So, All right, well, let's, uh, let's pray and we'll dive in here. Father, we just come before you as we open your word and ask you to help us um, as we think about these things and just think about you and uh, your power and your sovereignty and your providence and your faithfulness. And so I'm just asking that you would help us now as we uh, look at you in Scripture to come to right conclusions and that we would uh, enjoy what we see and enjoy you and know you more and trust you more. And I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. All right, first verse. In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord might, uh, by the mouth of Jeremiah, might be fulfilled. The Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing. Let's just read this. Thus says uh, Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever is among you of all his people, may his God be with him, and let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and rebuild the house of the Lord, the God of Israel. He is the God who is in Jerusalem, and let each survivor in which, whatever place he sojourns be assisted by the men of his place with silver and gold, with goods and with beasts, besides freewill offerings for the house of God that is in Jerusalem. Then rose up the heads of the fathers' houses of Judah and Benjamin, 
and the priests and the Levites, everyone whose spirit God had stirred up uh, to go rebuild the house of the Lord that is in Jerusalem. Now, last week we looked at the prophecy from Jeremiah um, and how it was fulfilled here in uh, two uh, ways, and we looked at that last week, um, how those 70 years that Jeremiah had prophesied about uh, would be fulfilled, and we talked a little bit about the fact of uh, the faithfulness that God has uh, for His people and His plan and His purpose, and in addition to that, uh, how the uh, fulfillment of prophecy is one of the ways we know the Bible is true. So people say, well, how do you know the Bible is true? There's a lot of answers we can give in that. But one of the answers we give is because of the fulfillment of prophecy and how God said things would happen, and they happen. And this is an occasion upon which uh, that happens. And so <clears throat> the fulfillment of prophecy in Scripture is very important. It's important for our faith in the Word of God as the, the Word of God Matter of fact, there was a test in Israel for a prophet. Um, does anybody know what that test was? How did you do the validity? I'm sorry, what was it? If it came true, this was a prophet. And if it doesn't, then they are not, right? And they're in trouble. Um, this is the way that we would know if a person was a prophet, if it came from God, if their prophecies came true. Um, now, let's talk about Cyrus. What an in, interesting individual uh, Cyrus is. He was the king of Persia. And, of course, now, remember last week, too, we broke up those major empires that are applicable to our study of the Scripture. And we had the Assyrian Empire. And then we had the Babylonian Empire. And then we had the Persian Empire and eventually what will be the Greek Empire and the Roman Empire. But for our study of the Old Testament history, it's the Assyrian and the Babylonian and the Persian Empire. And uh, anybody remember the, uh, uh, the story of Belshazzar who was uh, leading over in Babylon in Daniel chapter 5 when he was having this party at his home, and uh, the handwriting on the wall appears, and it says something to the effect of, you have been tried and found wanting, and this night your reign is over. Ultimately, he was the son of the true Babylonian emperor at that time who had lost his mind and went off uh, by himself and such, but Belshazzar was his son, and so that's when, right at that point, Daniel 5, so you can... You can know where it's at in your Bible. This is when the Persian Empire comes in and takes over the Babylonian Empire. The Babylonian Empire at this time was falling apart, and uh, the people within it were discontent. And Cyrus was just rising to power uh, in what was called the Persian Empire, or the, the Medes and the Persians, because it was those two groups of people that merged under Cyrus. Now, the reason Cyrus is important, well, there's a number of reasons, 
Uh, but he is one of the fulfillments of prophecy here in Ezra chapter 1, though uh, Ezra does not mention the prophecy uh, given by Isaiah. Let's look at it tonight. Let's look back or over at Isaiah 44, chapter 44. And this is so fascinating. This is um, a very striking prophecy that Isaiah gives. Now, remember, Isaiah is a prophet approximately 150 years before Cyrus shows up. So as Isaiah's writing, none, none of the events for the Jerusalem or anything had taken place yet. Babylonian Empire had not come in and gotten them. There was no Nebuchadnezzar and Daniel activities and all that kind of stuff. This was all had not happened yet. And Cyrus hadn't even been born at this point. And there's a prophecy which must have, I would think, caused a lot of questioning among the Jewish people who read it. And you find it in Isaiah 44 and verse 28. That's where we begin here reading. Verse 28 says, Who says of Cyrus, this is the first time chronologically his name appears in the Bible. So again, his name appears in the Bible earlier than this, obviously, in the book of Ezra, but not time-wise, because remember, Isaiah is writing before, okay? Who says of Cyrus, He is my shepherd, and he shall fulfill all my purpose, saying of Jerusalem, she shall be built, and the, of the temple your foundation shall be laid. Then in chapter 45, Thus says the Lord to his anointed, to Cyrus, whose right hand I have grasped, to subdue nations before him and to loose the belts of kings, to open doors before him that gates may not be closed. I will go before you and level the exalted places. I will break in pieces the doors of bronze and cut through the bars of iron. I will give you the treasures of darkness and the hordes in secret places that you may know that it is I, the Lord, the God of Israel, who call you by your name. For the sake of my servant Jacob and Israel my chosen, I call you by your name. I name you, though you do not know me. I am the Lord, and there is no other. Beside me there is no God. I equip you, though you do not know me, that people may know from the rising of the sun and from the west that there is none besides me. I am the Lord, and there is no other. I form light and create darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. So here we have a direct prophecy about a man being named by the Lord 150 years before he's even born. And the Lord says, you do not know me. And Cyrus, even when he does what he does, as we see him sending the Jews back, and that we must not come to the conclusion that Cyrus somehow was a true worshiper of the Lord, or that he was somehow a true believer. This was a pagan king and uh, worshipped many gods, 
And uh, so why not add to his repertoire of gods to worship this Yahweh? But the reality is God specifically now has named him as the one who would do. And you'll notice like in, in verse 28 of chapter 44, a saying of Jerusalem, she shall be built, and of the temple your foundation shall be laid. There was no reason for this prophecy at this point. I mean, that hadn't happened yet. Do you know what I mean? Like the destruction of the temple hadn't happened yet. All of these events hadn't transpired. This had to be very um, thought-provoking. Who is this Cyrus? And the fact that he would be mentioned as a Mashiach, an anointed one, a Messiah of types, uh, in that that this must have been somewhat confusing as they tried to figure out what this represents and in what this means, and at the same time thrilling when this unfolded, you know, before some of their very eyes as they were able to see what the Lord has done. But throughout this, as we read these verses in Isaiah. Why did the Lord do what he did in this way? What was his purpose in this? Why name Cyrus 150 years before he was born? Why use him in this way? What did he say was his purpose? That's right. That's right. He did this to display, put on display for everyone who he is. And what he's capable of doing. I am the Lord, verse 7, who does all these things. Okay, He says back up in verse 6, that the people may know from the rising of the sun and from the west that there is none besides me. I am the Lord and there is no other. This is, this is a, a prophecy that is designed to put God at the forefront as the only true God. And it's in a section of Isaiah where this is exactly what he's doing. He's challenging his people who have become idolatrous. You are worshiping gods of wood and stone, gods who cannot see, gods who cannot speak, gods who cannot do anything. You are worshiping the creation instead of the creator. You have exchanged, Romans 1, the glory of the immortal God for images. Uh, and this is foolishness. And turn from this. I am the Lord and there is no other. But it is for people, as he says here, from the rising of the sun and from the west, like us, who have now come into this relationship with this one God, and we believe that he's this one God. And we can study what he has done and what he prophesied about in Isaiah, through Isaiah, in Isaiah 44, and we can connect that now to the book of Ezra in chapter 1 and see what God does with this Cyrus, and we can say, wow, this is our God, right? If you look over at chapter 46 of Isaiah, in verse 8, he says this, Remember this and stand firm. Recall it to mind, you transgressors. Remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done, saying, 
My counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. There is no God, other God, professed God, that could do this. Declare the end from the beginning, declaring what's going to be, and it happens. Everything in His Word stands and comes to pass. So certainly when we're looking at things like this, we are to pause and say, you know, from our hearts, wow, God is awesome, and meaning that in the most reverent of ways. This is a, this is, He is the true God. That is absolute sovereign, uh, absolute sovereignty, and He will accomplish all His purpose. Okay, so that is the, the two prophecies, or the one prophecy from Isaiah 44 and 45 that we read about, uh, we learn about with Cyrus. So last week when I said in Ezra chapter 1 that there were two prophecies really fulfilled in that section, that's what I meant. The first was by Jeremiah, remember, 70 years, I'm going to send my people back. This is what happens. The second one, though not named as a prophecy in Ezra chapter 1, we know in connecting it to Isaiah's prophecy that Cyrus himself was a fulfillment of God's prophecy that he was the one that named him. And I think I mentioned this a few weeks ago, but it is interesting um, that by the time liberal scholars got done with the book of Isaiah, you actually had three different Isaiahs put together. In other words, they went in there and they found passages like this and said, this could not be from the Isaiah, from the Isaiah that would have been writing you know, in the 700s B.C., because there's no way, right, that he could name this, that he would know the name of this uh, pagan king who we'll see in a moment is a historical figure no one can deny. Uh, he's a historically known figure, even in the non-Christian world. And they're saying that can't be. Another well-known passage in Isaiah that they say this couldn't be was, of course, Isaiah 53, which is the, one of the clearest passages about the substitutionary atonement of Jesus Christ. So clear that from what my understanding is that they will not read that in uh, certain synagogues among Jewish people because of either believing it's not true or not wanting to read it or address it or deal with it or whatever in the sense that it's so clearly referencing the, the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. But this is the, this is the, this is the modern scholar um, uh, non-Christian, well, non-real Christian, because they're professing Christian. This is the way they approach the Bible, to dissect it to the point where they're saying, well, this can't happen and this can't happen, and they have to pull away all of these things that couldn't happen unless God was sovereign and could actually name this person a century and a half before he was born. But that's what's the difference. When you really, when a person has come to true saving faith in Christ, God works in them in such a way by His Spirit, and I'm sure everybody in this room has encountered this. When you open the Bible, you believe what you're reading. Even if you come to places where you're like, how could that be? Or what? I don't really understand that, or whatever it is. I think in true believers, there is an acceptance of what God has said. There's There's just something within us. We believe what we're reading Within us, as God's Spirit is really, I think, testifying with our spirit that these are the very words of God. Now, that is not to say 
that as a Christian person, you might not have doubts at times. Some Christians really struggle with doubt. They really do. And it's one of their issues that they wrestle with. But Christians, like just, I think the spirit just within us testifies to our, our spirit. And really doubts about the Bible and its truthfulness. We need to um, really keep those in check, acknowledge them right away for what they are, because they can grow and they can create problems uh, within people. And we must remember it's a doubting of God's word, which is one of the first things that the devil said in his dealing with Eve. Has God really said? So as soon as we're all of a sudden we're doubting what God has said, that doesn't come from God. God's not embedding those doubts in our mind. We have to ask where that comes from. And so we, we need to be a people that just open the Bible. We accept what it says as true, as coming from God and, and that. Okay. Any, any thoughts on that? Questions before we move on? Yeah. Right. Yes, that's right. Yep. Adam, you're going to say something. Well, you talked about the test for a prophet needs to come true. Obviously, both you just mentioned Cyrus and the Messiah needs to come true for a way. Yeah. Yeah, right. Well, we have to understand that the, the prophets, when I say that they're the test for them, it wasn't like they had to pass through a test in order to be a prophet. Prophets were identified in Israel as prophets, right? And yet, often their word was not accepted, even in their time, right? And um, Jeremiah was an example of that, you know. Yeah, and you know what's really interesting is that... Um, well, we could go down that. But yeah, so in other words, I'm not saying that there was a, there's actually a test I have to pass, but what God put in His Word was, if a prophet dares to say something that's going to happen and it doesn't happen, they're a false prophet. Uh, because when they were speaking for the Lord, you know, His Word is what, they were, what was coming forth from them. So it's good. Yeah, more. Right. Yes, yes. Somehow, by, the, by God's sovereign grace, that Isaiah was able to not, not be stoned to death. Well, yeah, but they're, so, so they had an understanding that some of the things that they were, just like us, we have prophecies that have not been fulfilled yet. And we don't think John's a false prophet for writing Revelation, right? So we, we know there are things in the future. They, they understood that. They did believe that. But I think that testing part was part of not just a specific test they went, but if they prophesied about something, and let's say it doesn't come to pass uh, how would we how would we want to work that? Because there are future ones, but if it doesn't come to pass, okay. Let me give you an example. So, like, let's say somebody says um, Jesus is going to return was going to return in 1988. Okay, some of you probably have on your shelf the book that's 88 reasons Jesus is going to return in 1988. Okay, that doesn't happen. That's a problem. Or Harold Camping 
uh, from Family Radio who predicted it on May 21st, 2011. This is going to happen. Jesus is returning. And he had this big system. Anybody remember that? Harold Camping, there was that, yeah. And I was in Russia when that night was going on. And I was there with this, the one guy who was our translator. And I said, this is the day he's supposed to return. He's like, what are you talking about? I was like, Harold Camping has been pumping this, you know, that it's today or whatever. I didn't believe it. And he goes, well, that's stupid. That's not going to happen then, you know, basically. So, but something to where a prophet would predict something and it doesn't happen. And it was clearly different than what they said. Do you understand what I'm saying? They said this, and then this didn't, then that was, I think, the idea behind it. Yeah, right. Yes. And some of them remember, like, like God said, you have prophets that are telling you right now, peace, peace, you know, between me and them, but there is no peace. You know, those kinds of false prophets that I think could be identified in that way. Okay, well, that's good. Good conversation. Um, now, let's, but I want to show you this in Cyrus. Um, let me read this to you first. He has an interesting uh, story. So, this author, and I'm just going to read from this. It'll only take a, a minute to read through it. But this is kind of the history, the biography of Cyrus himself. And he says, while these events were transpiring in Babylon, and he was just referring to Belshazzar and such, uh, to the east in Persia, which is modern-day Iran, Two rival but peaceful coexisting Aryan tribes were unifying into a single power. The Mede tribe in northwest Persia, led by uh, Estagis or something. I've always taught people, like, if you come across a name, you don't know how to pronounce it, just act like you do and nobody's going to know, but I couldn't even try that one. And the Persians in the southeast, led by Cambyses. In an effort to preserve his own kingdom, this first guy married his daughter uh, Mandane to Cambyses in a purely political arrangement. In time, she became pregnant, was expecting a child about whom legends grew up. Following the conception of the child, that Osteagus is alleged to have had a dream in which he saw a vine growing inside his daughter's womb that encircled and overshadowed all of Asia and the Middle East. He awoke alarmed. He went to his priest for the interpretation of the dream, and the priest explained the child would someday rule over all the kingdoms of men and would indeed overthrow Astagius' kingdom as well. He refused to believe it. When the child was born in 580 BC, he tried to have him assassinated. He committed that child into the hands, and this child now is Cyrus, of a Median nobleman named uh, Harpagus to have the child taken out into the wilderness and killed. However, the nobleman passed off the dastardly assignment to a royal herdsman whose wife had just delivered a stillborn child. The herdsman substituted the baby for his dead son and passed off his son as the slain royal child. He then raised the child of, as his own. The child's name in Persian was Korush, or Cyrus is the Greek pronunciation. In the deserts of Iran, Cyrus learned to shoot a bow and ride a horse. He learned all the manly arts, and in time, his father, King Cambyses, died in 552 B.C., about halfway through Israel's captivity. Cyrus unified the tribes of Persia and then turned himself against his grandfather, Osteagus, who tried to have him killed. Because of Osteagus' cruelty to his own people, when Cyrus marched against him, the entire army of the Medes defected to Cyrus. 
He was now the king of the Medes and the Persians, and immediately he set his sights on neighboring Babylon, uh, which was already in decline. When Cyrus came to Babylon in 539 B.C., Daniel 5 records what had happened with uh, Belshazzar, and Cyrus really uh, faced very little opposition to becoming the actual king over the entire empire and taking over that. It's quite a really uh, fascinating story about how God even preserved his life um, as a, a, a preborn infant and um, brought him into power. They should make a movie on that. It sounds movie-like, doesn't it? Like a big, uh, big movie. Now, here's where this becomes interesting. Yeah, right. Um, Here's where this becomes even more interesting. In 18, so we see how in, Cyrus, in Ezra, Cyrus put out this proclamation, right? That they should send back these uh, Jews. They can go back to Jerusalem. They can rebuild the house. He's giving them money to do it and, and saying that it's okay now. You go back from Babylon and you create this. Now, in 1879, an archaeologist digging in the ancient capital city of Nineveh, which is now Mosul, Iraq, discovered a clay cylinder about 23 centimeters long on which Cyrus's religious policy was written. And uh, here is a picture of that. Wait, I need to go this way. Why are you not working for me here? Oh, there it is. This is Cyrus's cylinder. This is still on display uh, in a museum to this day. But you can see like all the little squigglies, that's writing. And it's really interesting if you, there's a documentary online you can watch, it's like 10 minutes about this cylinder. And they actually show how this would have been soft clay. And then they take these little tool looking things and that's how they write on it. And just uh, to our, uh, you know, in the providence of God, even in our day, we have scholars who know how to read uh, what is on here, which is really fascinating in and of itself. But on this clay cylinder, and I was going to read it for you off of there, but I you know, only had a couple hours to learn that language anyway, so uh, it'd be a little rough. I'll read it in English, but um, he put some of his military exploits on there, and then he, he wrote uh, this, okay? And I return to these sanctuaries on the other side of the Tigris, the sanctuaries of which had been ruins for a long time, the images which used to live therein and established for permanent sanctuaries. I also gathered all their former inhabitants and returned to them their habitations. Furthermore, I resettled upon uh, the command of Marduk, the great lord, all the gods of Sumer and Akkad, whom Nabonidus, by the way, Nabonidus is Belshazzar's dad. He was the one that was off losing his mind and, and left Belshazzar behind, had brought into Babylon to the anger of the Lord of the gods unharmed in their former chapels, the places which make them happy. Now you think about chapter 1 of Ezra. And here you have this Cyrus, and he's sending these Jews back. Now on the one hand, if you didn't have this Cyrus cylinder, skeptics would say, that's crazy, what pagan king would do this. We have no historical evidence that he would send these people back and to boot that he's going to send their temple vessels back and all the belongings that were in their different temples and he's going to send these people back. And, but in 1879, this is discovered. 
uh, a great, one of the greatest maybe perhaps, archaeological discoveries of validating the Bible and its historicity. When you're reading a book like Ezra, you're now re- you can say, I'm reading actual history here uh, as, what, how, as how it related to the Jews. The Cyrus had this pol- uh, political philosophy that the people in his land, let them worship as they want, send them back, don't hold them in their captivity, and uh, uh, go through all of this. But how much does that demonstrate, right, the historical integrity of the Bible? And one uh, person, interesting on that, on that uh, documentary I told you about, I don't know if he was a Christian man or not, but he worked at the British Museum on which where this is on display. And he actually said, it's interesting that it came out about then because around that time was when Darwinianism was on the rise and the heavy skeptical, uh, uh, biblical skepticism was beginning to emerge on the validity of the history of the Bible. And God in His providence lets this be discovered to further uh, show the truthfulness of his Bible. What year again was it? 1879. Now, um, so, okay, good. So we have the, the Cyrus in the, in the Cyrus cylinder and um, the Lord just showing his sovereignty and his providence over these things and the validity of this, uh, the historicity of the Bible. Now, I want to show you something here, and this is what will we'll, uh, kind of draw this section to a close. If you look at um, verse 1, again, it says, The Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia. Do you see that in verse 1? <clears throat> and then the same phrase is used of everyone, verse 5, whose spirit God had stirred up to go up to rebuild the house of the Lord that is in Jerusalem. Now, this word for stirred up is interesting. It, it literally means to rouse like you would for somebody from sleep. But here it's referring to God doing something to the spirit of an individual. Okay? The in the, our spirit, you know, we, we know what that is. Stirring up Cyrus and stirring up uh, these other people to do to accomplish his purpose, okay? And this is a demonstration. When we say God is sovereign, we're not putting limitations on his sovereignty. This means his sovereignty extends to the heart of mankind. That God, in however he does what he does, can actually, the way the Jews would read this is that when they see history and they see Cyrus doing this, fulfilling his purpose, their immediate thought is God stirred up his spirit or the others that went back because there were many that didn't, but the ones that chose to go back to Jerusalem, God stirred up their spirit. They have a perspective upon God's sovereignty that extends to his ability now to work within the heart and mind and will of an individual in order to accomplish the purposes that he wants to produce. Some wrongly believe that God's sovereignty, like the heart of human beings, 
and the will of human beings and the disposition of human beings is like off-limits to God's sovereignty, as though He cannot move in somebody to do what He wants. As a matter of fact, it would be brought out most in connection with my sermon this morning. So we looked into Romans 8 and we saw what foreknowledge was. In that case, in Romans 8, it's equal to what Paul says in Ephesians 1, the doctrine of election. And one of the biggest issues that people take with that idea is the concept of the free will. And have you ever heard somebody say, God will not make you do anything you don't want to do. God's not going to... Your will, in other words, has somehow gotten off limits to the sovereignty of God. Now, it is true that when it comes to salvation, God does not make anyone be saved who doesn't will to do it. But God works in such a way, His sovereignty extends to the spirit, to the heart of a person. And God can work in such a way, and this is what He does. When He's going to save somebody, this is what He does. He works in their hearts. He stirs up their hearts so that they come to Christ completely willing. It's one of the charges you're going to hear against my message this morning is that that violates free will and God doesn't, He's not going to just drag somebody to heaven and doesn't want to go. And I would say, that's absolutely true. But God in His sovereignty works in the heart in such a way that we all came willing. Are we all not willing participants? Every one of us that came to faith in Christ did so from our wills. If you didn't, you're not saved. If you don't want to be saved, you're not saved. I mean, it's that simple. But what does God do without violating the will of the creature? He works within the person to such a way that they believe. Paul says this very clearly in Philippians chapter 1. He says, um, or no, Philippians chapter 2. He said, as you've always obeyed, continue to obey, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, knowing that it is God who works in you both to will and to work for His good pleasure. So God's sovereignty extends to the heart of individuals, and we can praise Him for that. Because our wills, by nature, were hell-bent against Him. But when the, when the Jewish people saw these things taking place, they knew this was God's stirring up of their spirit, working within them so that they willingly went. They knew it was Cyrus doing what he willed to do, but they could see the sovereign hand of God behind the scenes directing in the hearts of men. Proverbs 21.1, of course, the king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. Matter of fact, in Romans 9, as we'll be looking at that in just... A month or so, we're looking at the fact that the Scripture says to Pharaoh, for this purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. And then Paul says, so then, he has mercy on whomever he wills and he hardens whomever he wills. This sovereignty extends even to the hardening of a heart, like he did with Pharaoh. And the Bible puts forward this kind of sovereignty in God so that we can't say there's, any, there's nothing off limits from the sovereign, sovereignty of God. He, it even extends 
into the hearts and, and spirits and wills of, a, of an individual and of a person or of a pagan king who thought he was getting a novel idea one day. But ultimately, that novel idea to send people back was coming from uh, the Lord Himself. Okay? I love that. I'll leave us with this quote from Packer. He's talking about, this is our recommended book of the month, by the way, J.I. Packer, Evangelism and the Sovereignty of God. This is a really good book when you're wrestling in between that idea of, okay, if God's sovereign, why do, what are we witnessing to people for or whatever? And it helps you unpack all of that. Um, but he said this, there's a second way in which you acknowledge that God is sovereign in salvation. So even if people struggle with this doctrine, they still acknowledge it. That's what he's saying. He says, you pray for the conversion of others. In what terms now do you intercede for them? Do you limit yourself to asking that God will bring them to a point where they can save themselves independently of Him? I do not think you do. I think that what you do is to pray in categorical terms that God will, quite simply and decisively, save them. That He will open the eyes of their understanding, soften their hard hearts, renew their natures, and move their wills to receive the Savior. This is how everybody, all Christians instinctually pray this. I have never heard a Christian pray, even if they deny what I taught this morning. I've never heard a Christian pray saying, God, I wish you you could save this person. I know you can't because your sovereignty doesn't extend into the hearts and wills of people and he's got to will this. And so, you know, I mean, what does that prayer even look like? Like, what is the content of a prayer like that? But there is no such thing. Everyone prays, save my loved one. Change their hearts. Convict them of their sin. Show them their need of a Savior. Work in them. Draw them to yourself. This is what we're praying to God because we instinctually, even though sometimes our theology doesn't match it, our instincts about who God is, by reading things like Ezra 1, we say, wait a minute, this is a God whose sovereignty goes that far and to that extent. Okay? So we'll leave it there. Next week we'll uh, pick up with... uh, the temple vessels and the, the big genealogy sections of uh, the next part and the list of names. And I promise it won't be uh, tedious. It'll be good. We'll see some good things in there. Okay, let's pray. Father, thank you for your goodness and grace and love. Thank you for your sovereignty over us as sinful human beings. And we know that we need to thank you as well for the fact that we... We do love you, and we do do desire to know you and worship you, and we know that is a result of your grace in us. So we praise you for that. We thank you for the book of Ezra. And I pray that this week, as everybody here is going about their week, that you would bless them and that you would help them in whatever they have uh, laid before them this week, God, as they live out in this world, that they would be doing so uh, in your presence and knowing you're with them and sensing your love for them. And so I ask this in the name of Jesus, amen.